You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Hello and welcome to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. This is the show where we question all of your cultural creeds, including that the way to change someone's mind is to bury them in white papers and Snopes links and seven-part ProPublica articles while tightly smiling, speaking icily, and secretly hating them. I think I do that. And weirdly, my fake compassion plus seething strategy turns out not to be persuasive. Which is why today's guest gives me and you actual tips for changing people's minds. And it's not all Greek complicated rhetorical stuff like pathos and ethos and axios. It's cognitive science. My guest is David McRaney. He is a science journalist who's written and podcasted extensively about the mind. You may know him from his blog and book and podcast called You Are Not So Smart. David recently published his third book, How Minds Change, and we spoke about whether minds really do change, why that happens, and at the end of the episode, how. That is, a couple of good moves for changing other people's minds and hopefully your own too. David, welcome to This is Critical. Thank you so much for having me. Just so you know, we share this common interest that has been the centerpiece of your career, which is the question of how minds change which seems rather urgent right now. Yeah, I'm with you. I I have been writing about this for a long time. I had a podcast, You Are Not So Smart, for a long time, books about this. All that was very descriptive, though, not very prescriptive. And I had done a lecture where someone came up to me and said that their father was deeply embedded into a conspiracy theory. What could they do about that? And I mostly wrote about motivated reasoning, which is people coming up with justifications for what they think, feel, and believe so they can keep thinking, feeling, and believing those things. And I just told this uh, person, I said, there's nothing you can do. And I could feel myself like locking my keys in my car. Like I didn't like the advice I was handing out. And I realized I didn't understand it well enough to even say something like that. And around the same time, same-sex marriage norms and eventually the laws were changing so rapidly in the United States. It was very evident to me that minds can change, but I didn't understand what was going on in people's brains. And then if I could understand that and then build up to understand how that change happened individually, but then also cascaded, I felt like I could really 
understand something that I've always wanted to understand. And I did not realize how difficult this was going to be or how long it was going to take. But but the book that came out of it is much different from the things I've ever put out before. It's very on the ground, very personal, very subjective in the sense that you're with me along the way. And um, I love it. I love it too. And it, yeah, this was a very fruitful, if difficult, inquiry. And, and you make it quite clear that it was challenging. Um, you mentioned actually the origin of your thinking about this subject. And I, I want to go a little bit into your childhood in Mississippi, because you write about this phenomenon where kids learned things from the movies and from TV about something like evolution or sexuality. And these things were at odds with what your parents were teaching you. And then you started to think your parents were rubes because you had these more sophisticated ideas. You know, I sometimes think that this is the reason that people fear their children's education because they fear that the kids are going to start believing the kind of things that will make them think their parents are rubes. What do you think about that? Yeah, I I mean, this is a very common at least among the people that I grew up with, uh, the Gen X Mississippi Bible Belt kind of people. Yeah, we were watching Saturday Night Live. Uh, you know, we're watching Wayne's World. We're uh, we're listening to Nirvana. And before that, like I was watching Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Sundays. I was an only child in, in the Deep South. We lived in a trailer in the woods. And I was very socially isolated, but I had all these portals and I was eager to go into them to see what's going on out there. And a lot of the ideas were very challenging. Star Trek itself is very challenging. Uh, it's very good at subtext and challenging certain norms and ideologies. And this reminds me of the reaction to critical race theory and things today. Oh, these kids are coming home with all these crazy ideas. They're trying to indoctrinate my children. Mm-hmm. I, I remember very specifically the, being taught about the Civil War and bringing it home. And my parents, my father especially, being like, are you suggesting it's not good to be Southerner and not good to be a white person. Like he was very yes. pushing against it. I remember that I had already been ejected from religion early on. Here's a shorter version because uh, I don't, <laughs> I can tell stories about my childhood forever, which is it's in the book too after I visit Westboro Baptist Church. Because when I visited Westboro, and in the, that part of the book, I'm spending time with people who've left, but I wanted to make sure I actually went to Westboro to experience what they experienced. So I went to one of their services, their Valentine's Day service, actually. And I was struck by, oh, this is just Baptist church. Like I've been to this a million times. And I I say in the book, the thing that was most unsettling was that it was familiar. And the way I left the the Baptist church as a young man was when they were telling me about Noah's Ark, I wanted to know how come the animals didn't eat each other. Now, I wasn't Mm -hmm. looking to mess with their logic. I just thought it would be a cool story. This is in Bible school class. I'm a little kid. It's like picture books. And it's like, yeah, tell me about the spells they're casting or what is the anti-animal eating generator and, you know, something, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I was reading all this science fiction and love science fiction stuff and she got shocked. She inhaled deeply and said, oh, we don't ask those questions. Uh, and I was just embarrassed. I wasn't angry and I didn't feel like that was logically unsound. I was just a little kid. But I went to my dad and for whatever reason, as a Vietnam vet, he did not go to church, even though my mom did. Hmm. He had rejected organized religion for some reason that I have not fully explored with a man. But I told him, I was like, hey, dad, this is what happened. And he said, well, you don't have to go back to church if you don't want to. And I just didn't like giving up my Sundays. So I was like, yay, I didn't, I never went back. But if it wasn't for that incident, who knows who I would have become? Who knows what I would have been influenced by? Who knows what would have superseded and how it would have made sense of the world because of those things? 
We're going to take a short break. When we come back, why stories are so good at changing minds. And they might not even be true stories. Fiction, that is, the stories we know are made up, that are labeled as fiction, can be some of the most powerful tools to make us reconsider our beliefs. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. We're back with David McCraney, science journalist and author of How Minds Change. So, David, you bring up the media that you and your friends were exposed to growing up in Mississippi. You cite Wayne's World and Mystery Science Theater and Saturday Night Live. But it's not as though you were watching Nova or reading the work of an (laughs) academic like Stephen Jay Gould. That's right. And just the feeling of being part of something cool that seems to draw you in to a new worldview and make you want to, like, have what they're having on SNL, a set of ideologies and beliefs. I mean, who wouldn't want to be part of SNL as opposed to part of Sunday school? Well, I mean, there's an idea in psychology called narrative transport. And narrative transport is what happens when you are so fully engrossed in a book or a movie or, or a play or something where the outside world disappears and you keep turning pages and you buy into what's happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know when we feel ourselves being ejected, like some actor will make a cameo and we're like, oh, this is a movie. Or something will be said poorly or something just won't land right and we'll get ejected. The immersion is broken. Mm, But mm -hmm. in narrative transport, when it comes to the idea of uh, persuasion and and, uh, attitude change, when you're fully engaged in narrative transport, you will not internally counter-argue. That's what makes the big difference. Hmm. The things that are being presented to you just seem like they're experiences and you're not being challenged. You're not going to react negatively. You're not going to be pushed away because you're just engrossed in the material. And it's like you're just a vaporous ghost person floating in that world, paying attention to it. And that's why things like Uncle Tom's Cabot or Philadelphia or even uh, MASH, like they're programs that have affected culture deeply because of the narrative transport made it difficult for people to counter-argue against the humanity of what's on display. Yeah. Uh, and that's That was very effective to me growing up and for a lot of people in my generation who were from the same region. And then that's why representation really is important, not in a way where, like in LGBTQ issues, the character can't just be the quirky friend who's flamboyantly funny. Real representation does actually affect people because it opens you up to that's possible. You may have no other contact with somebody like that because contact is dangerous in the in the world that you're in currently. But you can be open like, oh, well, things are differently in other places. That deeply affected me as a young man, for sure. But, you know, it works the other way. And you brought up science fiction. I, You know, I've recently grown interested in how many uh, religious practices or faith groups or systems of belief 
have a work of fiction and often science fiction at the center. You know, the most prominent is Battlefield Earth with Scientology, but then the Turner Diaries with kind of contemporary anti-Semitism or uh, Left Behind with the kind of revelation ideas, the Left Behind series. So, I mean, isn't there a certain amount of danger in ceding oneself to narrative transport? Yeah, I mean, all the best propaganda is storytelling-based. You know, it depends on what the intent is, of course. I, I feel that as someone who doesn't think anything should ever be banned, there should be no banned books or anything mm-hmm. like that, and everybody should be information omnivores, the kinds of problematic texts you're talking about are often presented not in the context of, read this along with, you know, Anna Green Gables. No, it's, it's presented as, read just this. We finally wrote something safe for you to read. You can now finally enjoy science fiction because we wrote one thing that you're allowed to look at. You know, I, I remember growing up in a world where there was music that was okay to listen to, music that wasn't okay. And if you wanted to listen to heavy metal, yay, there's a Christian heavy metal band that I can now listen to because I can't listen to the real ones. Those books are often presented in that way. These problematic books that feel like they brainwash people, there's no such thing. Brainwashing doesn't exist. There's no such thing. Being programmed or deprogrammed, these things don't exist. Those are very, very, very debunked concepts in, in psychology. What it actually is, is another attempt to sever you from the rest of the world by giving you something that satisfies the itch, satisfies the curiosity that might get you to leave that world. They're like, here's a book that you can read to satisfy that curiosity. No dangerous stuff inside. In fact, everything in it says we're right and they're wrong. So I I see the danger in that in the context in which it is delivered. So I want to ask you, because you just said something very exciting, which is that brainwashing and deprogramming words people throw around pretty lightly in discussion, the obsessive discussion of cults that Mm -hmm. we're now being treated to everywhere we go. So I want to hear about if people do not make up their minds because they're brainwashed. If that's not how people make up their minds, how do they make up their minds? Oh boy, I could, if you let me, I will start talking and not stop for three hours. So just, Uh, just (laughs) rein me in, okay? Okay. I could sit here and listen to you for three hours. <laughs> Carry on, however compressed you, you want to make it. Here's the thing to, to prepare the listener and you that I, I am going to land on how do people get into cults. Okay. The two mechanisms by which the brain changes itself is they're called assimilation and accommodation. Assimilation is when there's information in the world, it's novel and ambiguous, and you disambiguate it by fitting it into your existing model. You interpret it as confirmation that whatever you thought and felt and believed before you saw that, you still think and feel and believe it. Whereas mm-hmm. accommodation is uh, acknowledging that your model is incomplete or incorrect in some way, and then updating the model to accommodate the information. Can you give us an, an example of, of that one in particular, or maybe each one? Yeah, yeah. They, I can give you both in a really easy example. It's from the book. It's um, when a child sees a dog for the first time, uh, they point at it and say something, and you say, dog. And Something categorical happens in their mind, something along the lines of uh, non-human, furry, four legs, mm-hmm. dog. And <laughs> they may even say wagtail, something else, you know, nose, eyeballs, the, whatever it is, categorically something took place in the brain. Then later on, they might see a horse and they point at it and say, look, dog, or, or if they're really like advanced, like big dog. And you have to say, that, no, 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 that's a horse. So at that moment, they're attempting to assimilate. It's non-human, four legs, animal. This fits the category, dog, assimilate. And then you say, no, that's a horse. Well, ooh, now I have to do something that I have to literally have to expand my mind. I have to create a new layer of abstraction, a category 
in which dogs and horses can live within. And they may not have a word for it yet, but it's going to be something akin to animal or creature. That's accommodation. That's an, you have to make sense of the world by expanding the range of your understanding. Mm-hmm. And we're doing this nonstop, constantly. This conversation, we're assimilating and accommodating, assimilating and accommodating. And you do that enough, and you'll eventually have a very complex model of reality that you use to make sense of things. In moments of uncertainty or ambiguity, you can disambiguate and find certainty uh, using this very, very rich model of all the experiences, priors, and information you've got so far. And at a certain point, there's a tightrope that you're walking, which is if I update when I shouldn't, if I change my mind, I could become wrong. But if I don't change my mind, I might stay wrong. And both are dangerous from a proto-human standpoint. It could get you eaten or it could prevent you from eating. But when the model gets really complex, we start erring on the side of assimilation because it's just safer to assume that the model that got us here will keep us going. So we all resist updating to a degree for that reason. And we can be overwhelmed. Enough anomalies, enough counter-information, and we can cross the threshold and going, yeah, I really should accommodate here or I really should change my mind. But there are other motivations that will increase the amount of resistance that you experience that will magnify it by quite a bit. It could simply be something like, I don't want to lose my loved one or I don't want to risk losing my job. These are all motivations that will make you a little bit more resistant. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing that influences resistance more strongly than social costs, belonging, the fear of ostracism and shame, because we are social primates. In fact, we are ultra-social primates. We are really, really set up to care a whole lot about what other people think, especially our most trusted peers. The great sociologist Brooke Harrington told me that the equals MC square of social science is that the fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. Hmm. And so if the ship is sinking, we'll put our reputation in the lifeboat and we will gladly let our bodies go to the bottom of the ocean. And we saw this with like things like masking and vaccination, where if, if that had become politicized for a person, it was much more important for them to keep their reputation intact as a good member of their group than it was to literally die from a plague. And to bridge all this to cults, which I promised I would do, uh, <laughs> is that... Since that's your main motivation, since belonging goals supersede accuracy goals for everything, the onboarding process into a cult or a conspiratorial community or even into certain religions is you have these anxieties. It's like being, it's like you're at a tent in the woods and you have, uh, you hear a sound and you're, and you feel like, oh, that could be a bear. If you go looking with a flashlight, maybe you find a bear, maybe you don't. On the internet, you find that your anxiety was justified. And you'll most likely find it was justified because you'll find other people who share that anxiety. And once you find other people who share that anxiety and you start hanging out with those people and you start sharing new anxieties with those people, you start to form a social identity, a community bond. Mm -hmm. That's the onboarding into conspiratorial places. The onboarding into cults is very similar. In this case, the anxiety thing is there too, but also you have a desire to be validated. There's an emotional need that is not being met in your immediate environment belonging is what you're seeking. And then there are people who say, I will non-judgmentally offer you the validation and security that you seek. And in the end, the result is the same. To not believe this conspiracy or to leave this cult means losing my reputation and denying myself all the social bonds and securities that I've afforded and the affirmation of the values that I need affirmed. That will drive behavior more than anything else. And there's no 
like you can't just dump a bunch of facts on somebody and expect them to lead. And cold deprogramming especially will not work because, see, I actually brought it all the way back. I'm very impressed with my own self. Thank you very much. Yeah, you landed the it. Cold, de- cold deprogramming is so super ridiculous. It's uh, it's basically just telling a person you can't leave this room until you stop being in the cult. And if you want this sandwich, you, you better tell me you don't want to be in this cult. You just kidnap a person and you coerce them. And coercion is not something I advocate for. It is certainly not the t- actual persuasion because even people who like the whole brainwashing thing came from uh, prisoners of war in Korea who supposedly had been brainwashed to believe that they were communist or something, but they were just reading statements because they didn't want to be beaten. They were reading statements because they wanted to survive. They reported, and there's so much research in this because as soon as they came home, psychologists welcomed them into the fold and said, let's talk about what happened. They didn't internally start to take on to those beliefs. They were just expressing them for the sake of not being harmed. Almost like a catechism or like some kind of recitation that you say in the liturgy at church. Like any, that you just say it to fit in. You haven't even parsed the Nicene Creed. I've said that thing, you know, hundreds if not thousands of times. No idea what I'm saying. I just, everyone else is saying it. Absolutely. But I will, yeah. I will say here with the caveat, I've spent time with people who've gone through the, the deprogramming process. I've spent time with people who still actively do cult deprogramming, though it is illegal to do so because you're already kidnapping a person. Mm. Uh, there was a whole chapter in the book about this that we eventually cut because I just got way off track of the arc that I was taking and it was easier to just tell it to you in the beginning in the introduction. But a lot of people do report they really appreciate that moment in their lives because they were in a bad place. Like the cult was bad. It was hurting them. And that kidnapping and coercion did give them the opportunity to be away from the cult long enough for them to get an objective view of what was happening. Yeah. And so it didn't change their beliefs, but it did give them an opportunity to question their beliefs and safety to do so. But you can also do that through much more ethical means that don't require all this uh, coercion, right? And Mm -hmm. so often, even though culty programming was debunked and so is brainwashing is debunked and all those things, Many people do subjectively report that they appreciated that they got kidnapped. A lot, however, do not. And the literature is very robust. Like There are people who have been deeply harmed through the deprogramming process. And a lot of the kidnapping was really severe. So not to get off track with that, I just want to note that. No, I think I think it's also interesting because with 9-11 truthers, with cults like Nexium, we think that there's a whole set of beliefs that you need to be persuaded out of. But often you just need to want to be moved into a new setting where you get to eat differently and you get to see different people. You feel physically better. I mean, if you know, we know, all know lots about Nexium. If you were going to list a creed of Nexium, what would it have been? You know, it would be like, I need to stay in Albany to be near this weird guy. And so it's not as though persuasion, as you say, can get you out of it. And it's no more clear that brainwashing is a component of it as it is maybe in a bad marriage, you know, or a bad relationship. Like, has the person brainwashed you into thinking, you know, you... Can I tell you something about that? Yeah, please. There's a great study. I hope uh, it's complicated, so I might mess it up like a joke. But there's a study where they had a professor... He had a uh, thick Belgian accent, and they did a study where in some classes he was mean and just this real hard ass who gave you a bunch of extra assignments and pop tests and real angry feedback, and it's just aggressive. And then at the same time, he had another classes where he was very laid back, very hippie, very, hey, turn it in when you turn it in, I don't even grade, that kind of thing. And they would ask people to rate the professor 
And then they would ask them specifically, what do you think about his accent? And the hard-ass professor, they'd say, I hate his accent. One of the worst things about him. Yeah. And then the professor, when he was nice and he was laid back, what do you think of his accent? I love his accent. It's one of the best things about him. So when you fall in love, these little quirks about people become the reasons why you like them. And when you are in the middle of a breakup or something worse, those same quirks become the reason why you're breaking up. But in both cases, those reasons are just the most salient, easy to pick out things about the person. It's difficult to articulate what is actually driving our behavior, what is motivating us in both places. Sometimes the drives are so deep, they are far below the ability for us to introspect and produce in words. So we instead articulate what is most salient as our reason for doing so. But that's also true when a person who is against same-sex marriage plucks out pieces of the Bible and says, this is why I think that. They're doing the same thing because the reason they're against it is something much more cultural, something that is that is specific to the region they're in or the subset of their religion. And the Bible in that case is just the authority justification tool for saying, this is why I think that. Mm -hmm. But since that religious texts and most religious texts are incredibly ambiguous and have lots of words in them, you can find justification for anything you want in those if you pick and choose well enough. And we do that at large with the entire internet for just about everything. And that's a very important component of how people move about in our world. We're going to take a short break. After the break, in researching this book, David was determined not to write the next How to Win Friends and Influence People about making eye contact and remembering people's names. But along the way, he learned that, yes, minds do change. And yes, you can change them. That's right. News you can use. Coming up, David tells us how. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. with David McCraney, science journalist and author of How Minds Change. So one of the most fascinating parts of your book, David, was the persuasion techniques of the prose. And you mentioned a group of people called deep canvassers. I don't know if listeners had heard about this. I never had. These are organizers who go door to door talking to people about polarizing issues, things like abortion, trans bathroom bills. Um, And they only talk for about 20 minutes, but it, it seems like they are able to change minds and keep them changed. You also mention street epistemology, motivational interviewing, and you give just these amazing examples of minds changing that sort of stand at odds with the common wisdom that people won't change their minds, that we've got a whole set of beliefs that become ever more calcified the more we try to justify them. And that's why, like, in the book, you're wondering, well, what do you do about that? Well, I give you uh, multiple persuasion techniques to deal with people in this way, knowing all this stuff is true about us. I think the thing that was most exciting to me in writing the book was when I met 
people who do deep canvassing and street epistemology and motivational interviewing, many of these groups had never met each other, but they were A-B testing techniques over and over again and throwing away what didn't work, keeping what did. And then in the course of that, they developed these persuasion slash conversation techniques that are pretty much identical. And in those conversations, they follow a certain order. They each have multiple steps. And without getting too far into it, you only need two of the steps. So if people are listening and want to take something away, like how do I have a difficult conversation with somebody who disagrees with me? Yes. How do I have a difficult conversation with a family member? I'll tell you the two easy steps and then I'll run through all the steps really quickly. But here's the two steps you should go with. Okay. Number one. Well, actually, step zero, ask yourself, why do you want to do this? Why is Mm. it so important for you to change this person's mind or have them see things Mm -hmm. a different way or entertain your perspective? And then whatever answer you come up with, say, why is that important? And it's why is that, why is that, why is that? And chain that down to get as as rudimentary as you can and try to start the conversation at wherever you land. Mm -hmm. So do that first. Like with my father, with a conspiracy theory, it was like, why do I want to change his mind? Because he believes things that I don't believe. Well, why does I care about that? Because I believe that he's trusting sources that shouldn't be trusted. Why do I care about that? Because I feel like he's being manipulated by people that are doing bad things. Why do I think they're bad? I can keep going and going and going. But it's important. If you don't do that first, you'll have a poor conversation. Mm-hmm. So first thing is try to avoid reactance. It's a psychological term for when a person feels like their agency or freedom is at stake. Mm-hmm. They will be feel a motivational arousal to get away from the stimulus that's making them feel that way. You can just do that by saying, I don't, you should think what I think, or there are people who think things that you should think and you don't think those things. And I want to take them, I want to copy paste that in your head. We're going to, you do that to a person. I don't care. Even if they like you, they're going to be like, it's going to, yeah. and you can't help but feel that way. And they're going to push away and try to end the conversation. So instead you need to be transparent and ask their permission and say, Hey, I'd really like to talk to you about this issue. I wonder what you think about this. I'm really interested in what you have to think about it. I want to see if it's mm-hmm. how, how, if I can learn something from it. I'm, I'm just really interested where you're coming from. Yeah. And so open up with transparency and give them the opportunity to say, yes, I do want to have this conversation. And give them the opportunity to leave whenever they feel like they don't want to do it anymore. Reactance will be set aside. And then also do not say anything to them that could be interpreted as you should be ashamed for thinking, feeling, or believing mm. what you feel. If they feel that the shame is on the line or ostracism is on the line, definitely eject from that conversation. Even if you do feel that way, and it's important that none of this is asking you to see things their way or none of this is asking you to adopt a, a belief that you think is harmful or heinous or incorrect. I'm telling you how to do something where you actually can have the conversation instead of not and get what you want instead of the opposite. So avoid reactance, avoid shame. And then from there, you want to ask about the issue and then try to get to get it out of this binary win-lose debate thing, right-wrong, you need to say, on a scale from zero to 10, or if you want to get really deep, one to 100, where do you, would you put yourself on this? So if it's a fact-based claim, you'd say, like, how certain are you? And then if it's an attitude thing, like, how strongly do you feel about it? And when they give you the number, ask, why does that number feel right to you? And this opens up a completely different form of conversation. Mm. Keep it on that on their side. Let them explore the issue, hold space for that, and guide them through some introspection and metacognition. And if, if they say they're a seven, you could ask things deeper saying like, why not an eight? Why not a nine? If your viewpoint is on the other side of the scale, ask them questions that helps them generate their own counter arguments as if you were making those counter arguments. And when they say it to themselves and produce it internally, 
it lands completely differently and doesn't feel like you're trying to push them around. Yes. And those kind of conversations, and you need to have many of them, are much more likely to open up a person to seeing things differently than any other form of, of conversation or persuasion that people may be trying to employ and yeah. may come to you intuitively, but you know you've not gotten what you wanted out of it the last couple of times you tried it. This idea of giving someone the, the numbers is brilliant. I mean, it's very unlikely that anyone says 100% or they're a 10, everything is certain. And once they say a nine, it might be the thing that least likely to have jostled doubt in your mind. I mean, I've, I've seen ex-Mormons say, you know, it was this one detail about Joseph Smith's journey that I thought they got a little bit wrong. <laughs> and so that made me drop the whole thing. It's not, not how you would talk them out of a certain kind of toxic Mormon beliefs about gender. It might be not something you even know. But you're right. The thing that, that generates the doubt is not something that you should be voicing. Let them voice it. I mean, that is just really brilliant. You have persuaded me. <laughs> Where would you say you are on a scale of one to 10 on that? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, uh, well, because I want to keep you in the game. I'll say I'm 99% persuaded. <laughs> well, 99 is not 100. I'm wondering where you're, and we could go, you know where we're going from there. If we had more time, I'd go all the way with it. <laughs> My one doubt is that I have gone down the road of trying to understand what's meant by brainwashing. And before I drop the belief that brainwashing is a phenomenon, I need to sit quietly with it. I can't decide it in the moment. Sure, sure. I'll send you, uh, I, did, I did an episode of my podcast about that with Megan yeah. Phelps Roper, where we talked at length about that. And uh, she, she left Westboro. I'll send you a link to that and it'll give you hopefully enough material to kind of get involved in, on my side of things on that. I love this. We will link to that in the show notes. And David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and five-star review the show in Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people learn about us. For more information and to keep tabs on the show, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Alaf Better and Michelle O'Brien are the producers. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.